HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on today's journey through culinary history. Italy, as we're all aware, is a land of ancient cultures. Just look at the ruins, right? And the fibers of those ancient cultures are woven through its everyday modern culture. Nowhere is this more noticeable than on many of the islands, which dot the Mediterranean waters off its coastline, and maybe one in the Adriatica. But these islands were battlegrounds and places of refuge of ancient peoples for millennia. Today, what's most evident from those ancient cultures is the culinary imprint that influences the various island cuisines. Katie Parla's new book, Food of the Italian Islands, explores and describes the land and the food. Katie is an author, a television and podcast host, a journalist, a culinary guide and educator based in Rome. And no matter what hat she's wearing, the historian in her guides her way, looking at social and cultural history via food and drink. She has written, edited, or contributed to more than 35 books, including A Taste of Rome, American's Foligno, Flower Lab, Food of the Italian South, and The Joy of Pizza. Her newest book is, as I mentioned, Food of the Italian Islands. Katie co-hosts Gola, a podcast of her own about Italian food, drink, and culture. She has appeared on Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy, Chef's Table for her culinary expertise, and hosts culinary shows on Recipe TV, including Katie Parla's Rome, Katie Parla's Roman Kitchen, and Gola on the Road. And she, as I said, has just published her newest book. I don't know when you find time to write these books, Katie, but you are one very productive uh, food writer, I must say. So welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Linda. This is a, that litany is a good reminder that I should schedule some vacation time later this year. <laughs> good one. Right. And <laughs> I might add, Katie, if you go back in, in the list of um, the history of my shows, Katie is no stranger to our show. Before you even wrote a book, I think you were on doing, we talked about something. I don't know. You always had somebody who was out there, you know, pushing the way. And I said, yes, it's right up my alley. And we've been managing to talk every couple of years, at least either in Italy or here. And um, and I always welcome the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah. I have really fond memories of meeting you near the Spanish Steps. And we recorded in a hotel, I think. Oh, yeah. We co- recorded in the lobby of a hotel. I think that was after a couple of drinks in the hotel <laughs> lobby, however. <laughs> Perhaps there was but, a Negroni or two in the mix. Yeah. It was good. It was good. Well, Talking about these Italian islands, I've been to a few, hardly not all of them. Where I was, In fact, I was amazed when you parsed it out and listed in the book all the different islands. That's a lot of islands. So many. Um, yeah. But uh, give us a little history here. These islands, they're not, not all of them have the ancient history. Some of them, in fact, were recently um, settled, let's say the 1800s, but you know, but a lot of these are really ancient islands. Well, give us a little history on some of these backgrounds. Yeah. So first of all, I'll just sort of lay out the islands, because when people think of islands in Italy, they immediately gravitate towards Sicily, which is a gigantic island, of course, the largest in right. the Mediterranean. But it also has its own islands. Uh, Levanzo, Marettimo, Favignana, Alicudi, Pantelleria, Linosa, Lampedusa. And that is just a taste. There are more. Uh, Sardinia, another super ancient place, um, has islands of its own. And Sicily and Sardinia and all the little guys around them have historically been, as you said, battlegrounds, places of refuge, places of supreme cultural development, agricultural innovations. And so when we approach these islands, we've got to talk about several millennia of history, gastronomic and cultural. Um, I live in Rome. And so the island that's closest to me is Ponza, part of the Pontine Island chain, a mm-hmm. uh, place that was developed during Roman times and continues to be a place where Romans flock in the summer. Um, everyone, I'm sure, is familiar with Capri uh, off the coast of Naples and the Amalfi Coast, but there are other islands in the Neapolitan chain, like Vento, uh, like Ischia and Procida, which to me feels like a little chunk of La Sanita, a very gritty neighborhood in Naples has somehow drifted into the bay. So amazing. So much, so much energy there. Uh, then you got, you know, Elba and Giglio and Tuscany. Can't forget about Puglia's Tremedy Islands and other famous islands in the Venetian Lagoon. So all of these places that I've just listed, um, most of them have ancient histories. But as you point out, places like Linoza and Lampedusa didn't really have much in the way of development until the very late 19th century. Uh, because they are so remote and they're in places where predictable winds blow in certain seasons that makes Mm. living there, getting there and getting away from there really complicated, as I've learned several times. All right. And obviously there must be not a lot of natural resources, like growing land and and produce that makes it an attractive place for people. Exactly. And the food of the islands is really shaped in many ways by topography and climate. And so Linoza, for example, is this very small island, super volcanic, so has a rich, fertile soil, but the winds are relentless. And so 
people there have really focused on cultivating lentils, um, which can thrive in such conditions. But it's a lot of lentils. And there's some fish too, but there's not much grazing land, no livestock. Uh And so people rely on what they can get from the mainland, which for them is Sicily. Well, it's it's amazing that um, the different uh, influences of the of the many islands. Which are there any? What were some of the major culinary impacts from the ruling empires that that you can think of? Let's say, obviously, Sicily had a, a whole host of them. Yeah, um, I mean, Sicily is definitely the island where there's been the most written and studied um, because there were these noble courts based in Palermo. We have resources that talk about food and beverage and the culture of these places. Um, And when you look at, you know, any Sicilian table, you're going to see evidence of uh, the Greeks in the form of grapes and olives, uh, the Romans, of course, um, later Arabic culture, Norman culture, but more recently, Spanish culture, which mm-hmm. um, was you know the dominant power there until the late 19th century. Um, meanwhile, Sardinia, which is wild. Have you been there, by the way? Yes, I have. I spent a lot of time there, uh, several times. Yes. It's freaking amazing. Yeah, um, But it it's is. also less discovered, for sure. And it's a place where you know durum wheat has been cultivated since antiquity, before the Romans got there. Of course, the Phoenicians um, had... Uh, settled bases. Um, and I know I have to talk to you about Botarga, which is a Phoenician ingredient. Um, and then just as Sicily underwent these waves of conquest, dominance, and migration, the land absorbed the influences from abroad. Right. It's amazing. I mean, Sicily and Sardinia, um, you, I don't even think of them as some being some of these, you know, small islands that were affected. I mean, they are almost countries unto themselves, you know. I mean, absolutely. When you drive, I'm sure you've seen the graffiti in Sardinia. When you're driving through the countryside, you'll see graffiti against the current occupation, the Italians. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. I mean, you know, they have a, and there is a language of their own too. Multiple. Yeah. Sardo, like, so I tend to uh, spend time in places where not everyone is fluent in the Italian language um, and so I've been very fortunate in in having friends of mine translate from Sardinian into Italian, so I'm able to interview people in rural zones. Yeah, that we took we did a climb into uh, the top of this one. It was a what was that? We were up in the. Uh, okay, I can't even remember now. Get a you know a brain freeze here. Um, we had gone to Sugolagone, and we. We're climbing up one of the mountains and we took a, a guide to show us where to get. And then you get into the inside where all the banditti hung out and hid. And it was like an inside of a volcano, but it wasn't a volcano. And, I, you know, I kept begging him along the way to please describe to me in the, the original language and then translate into Italian for me so I could understand. But it was, it was uh, quite interesting. Yeah. It's wild. It's it's cool that you bring up banditry because that is really a strong part of the identity of certain parts of Sardinia. And even the knife culture is influenced by occupying forces trying to right. limit banditry by uh, making certain lengths and types of knives illegal, but without yeah. like actually <laughs> it's hard to enforce it's hard to enforce in a wild place like that. But 
the occupiers tried. Right. So for anyone who's traveled to um, the larger islands, Sicily and Sardinia, you you see a lot of the popular dishes. Sicily particularly, I think the everyone notices the Arab influence in the food of Sicily. Uh, would you say that that was one of the larger impacts on on that island that Without is lasting? Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, when we think about the the Arabic cultural periods in Sicily, some of the major dishes that we consume today are influenced by that. Anything with almonds, anything with eggplant. I mean, caponata is one of the most iconic dishes from the island. Uh, yes. Uh, the sweet and sour flavors, the use of sugar. Um, I mentioned almonds. You know, they appear in sweet and savory incarnations. Almond paste being a really dominant one in the form of marzipan. Um, the citrus cultivation, the durum wheat transformation into dried pastas. This is all rooted in now a millennia of tradition in Sicily. And it's, of course, been tweaked and changed and has evolved. But these mm. influences are really present. And one of my favorite uh, places in Sicily is Palermo. That's, you know, I'm a little bit biased. That's where my family comes from. <laughs> and there are these canats outside of the city that were dug in the ninth century. They're channels that tap the water table and deliver water to fields, transforming what were very desert-like conditions into land that could be cultivated. So in a way, creating these oases that really evoke Morocco, Tunisia, parts of Lebanon. It's absolutely spectacular. And uh, the canats were um, continue to be used in some in some places. In others, mm-hmm. they were used like for bandits and mafiosi to hide out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and and some of that uh, the the cuisine uh, that persists, like you have one dish in there for couscous with fish, um, any kind of fish with raisins and nuts. I mean, it's very Middle Eastern, also. Um, so you can see the this this traveling of the of the different um, cuisines and the cultures. Absolutely. Yeah, and you mentioned eggplant. I mean, eggplant. Well, uh, you know, little nuggets throughout the book that if you you read carefully, you learn some really interesting things. Um, you were talking about. Well, you said mentioned how eggplant is is huge um, in Sicily, but throughout many of the islands because it's a it's a plant a nightshade that comes ripe in, you know, in the summer, late summer, and it's pretty predominant in most of the islands. And eggplant parmesan, as we all know here in America, very popular dish. But you mentioned that the etymology of of eggplant parmesan. There's a lot of, uh, amongst Italians in particular, there's a desire to um, root the name of something in some provenance or historical period. And, you know, when you hear Parmigiana di Melanzane or Parmigiana di Zucchine, whatever the Parmesan happens to be. That's what you think. That's what you think. Like, oh, it's got to be from Parma or there's Parmesan in it. But because it's sort of uh, layered and shingled, um, the origin of the word is more likely related to that organization of sort of tiles of, of eggplants stacked with one another. And, you know, you know, from living in the tri-state area, my place of birth, <laughs> that the eggplant parmesan that is transported to the United States by immigrants is transformed. It becomes a, a whole meal or a sandwich filling. 
and it tends to be fried. You know, my family, as I mentioned, is Sicilian, and we always had real thick layers of eggplant that would be breaded and fried, and they are sponges that absorb oil, and you have like one slice of one slice. layers, and you're yeah. like, I'm done for the day. One slice that weighs half a pound or a pound. <laughs> yeah, like, where's the Tums? All right. But in, in Italy, are as you know, the listeners well know, uh, typical at least 20th and 21st century cuisine is a coursed meal. And so eggplant parmesan uh, can serve as your secondo. Um, some people do serve smaller portions of it as a starter, but it's part of a longer progression of dishes. And if you're eating a whole brick of parm of, of eggplant parmesan at any point, you're going to be like, I'm done. Yeah, right. And so <laughs> it also tends to be prepared in a much lighter way, very thin slices, um, often baked rather than fried. Um, and there are as many Parmesan recipes as there are Sicilians or Neapolitans or, you know, <laughs> fill in the Southern region. Right. So it's, it's nice to be able to have an eggplant Parmesan that is delicious and satisfying, but doesn't fill you up so that you can enjoy other dishes along the way. Right. Um, Sardinia, we'll, we'll get, we'll dispense with the, the large islands first. Uh, some of their specialty dishes that and the influences. I'm obsessed with Sardinia. I hope everybody immediately <laughs> books a trip. Stop uh, in Rome because I don't that, believe that there are many direct flights. Um, not the time that I'm going to be, but you know, so many people are. Well, as you mentioned, you know, the Costa Smeralda, it, you know, it's just, it's another, it's not even part of, of Sardinia culturally as it should be known, but I'd skip it. Yeah. Let's skip the Costa Smeralda. What you know? What's appealing about it is that there are a lot of luxury properties, and there's a lot written about it. So it's the place that attracts the most visitors. But because it's transformation, mainly by new occupiers, of course, um, it's had to lose its regional identity. And so it's very much a place where you can go and find um, sort of dishes from all over Italy or things as delicious as it is like spaghetti and, and clams that is not really rooted in any specific place, uh -huh. but has become a, a symbol of coastal dining. But I prefer every other place in Sardinia. Um, and one of my favorite places to go is Tortoli, which is on the Eastern coast and is uh, one of the many lagoons in Sardinia and the lagoons, because they're somewhat sheltered and, you know, bordering inland properties, they were an important source of food. And, you know, gray mullet and other fish would congregate there before going into the sea to breed. And the Phoenicians and later Nuragic culture and, and Romans and Sardinians learned to salt the row of this fish for preservation. And then it could be used in cooking and it imparts this briny umami to dishes. If you want to make spaghetti with clams with a Sardinian vibe, then just grate some Botarga, a little flurry with your microplane, and you've got a, a Sardinian dish. Um, and Sardinia, you know, has, of course, this long tradition of raising pigs and dating back now three millennia, roasting pigs has been a local custom. And porcedu is one of the many dialect words that is that denotes a suckling pig. Um, they're sold in markets. Some people slaughter their own in spite of regulations against that. And these very tiny uh, pigs are roasted on a spit, or sometimes they are 
I mean, for lack of a better verb, crucified <laughs> and uh, put on spits and then turned back and forth against a, a standing flame mm-hmm. so that it slowly cooks. And because of the really high collagen content, you have to do a really long and slow roast in order to render the fat and to cook the meat. And it's it's a spectacular Sardinian delicacy. Difficult to find Porche du Sardu off the island because until very recently, uh, a, um, what's the word? A flu infected the Sardinian um, pig stock and therefore Sardinian pork products were banned from leaving the island. Recently, some regulations um, have allowed a small amount of animals that are now healthy um, to be slaughtered and, and their salamis or fresh meat be exported. All right. Well, as we were talking about the um, different things that were that were found on the island, that becomes part of their cuisine. Uh, you know, if one island has a lot of sheep, a lot of island, ha- one island has, you know, obviously fish is, is something on most of the islands, but um, sheep in particular are, are the livestock of trade in Sardinia, mostly for its cheese, correct? Absolutely. And dating back to Roman times, Sardinia was a big destination for lumber and the deforestation of Sardinia created a lot of grazing land. That tradition continued in modern times. And so the grazing land in Sardinia is, is significant, whereas the the, air, the deforested areas uh, have been so aggressively harvested that um, erosion is an issue and, and forests have not been able to grow back. But mm-hmm. you know, pecorino is a generic term for sheep's milk cheese. So much pecorino is made in Sardinia. 97% of all pecorino romano is produced on the island. Of course, there's pecorino sardo, um, and a, you know, a litany of small regional traditions. Fiore Sardo is another important pecorino product. And when you visit Sardinia, alongside porcedu on most menus, also agnello, so lambs, right. a lot of mutton. Mutton really features pretty heavily in the cuisine of, of Sardinia, whether it's in the form of a stew, or if the bones have been transformed into a stock into which pasta is added to cook. Um, and I love Sardinia for so many reasons. One of the many, the sheep traffic jams when you're driving through the countryside. <laughs> shepherds. Yes. What's cool to see it's shepherds of all ages grazing their flocks across the road. And then, you know, you're kind of like stuck there and it's the cutest thing ever. And I just, I love those experiences of, of having that agricultural identity of the island just in, in the foreground all the time. And then just relaxing and hearing those bells of the flocks returning. It's just, just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to, to Pane Carasau, which is something that the shepherds needed or you, or that they, it was, came from them actually, right? The bread, the, the crisp flatbread. Pane Carasau is such a practical food. And there's some evidence that its production dates back to neurogic times. When you're traveling through Sardinia, you'll see these sort of towers of stone looming on hills, evidence of the neurogic culture, a pre-Roman set of tribes and or civilization. And, you know, dating back as far as, you know, 2,500 years, people were making this naturally leavened bread that would be rolled very flat and then cooked in a wood-fired oven Um, So it puffs up much like a pita 
And then uh, when you slice it into two strata, you have a somewhat soft bread called pane lento. You could stop there. You'd be good. But if you're a shepherd, you need something that will last for a long time. And so the Sardinian custom is to toast the pane lento until it's really dry. But when it comes out of the oven, it's still a little bit pliable. Like it's crisp, but it's pliable enough to fold into quarters. And then you just tuck that right in your shepherd's bag and you have your bread resource as you're grazing flocks for months at times. Hmm. Well, that's that's very economic. Just I'm always trying to wear bread however yeah. I <laughs> Right. When that's Carousel, a good one. lets that happen. All right. Uh, so now we go on to some other islands. We, you know, we we can always come back to these because, but there are so many others, and and I think of them as some people. Well, what I want to say is, do you? Is there an island that has the most unique cuisine in your mind that you've explored? One that really stands out as being the most different, you know, apart from Sardinia and and Sicily. Apart from Sardinia and Sicily, that's a great question. I mean, the islands uh, off the coast of Rome were actually under Spanish dominion. So mm-hmm. the Pontine Islands, and when I say Rome, I really mean like Formia, Latina, those places in the yeah. south of the region. Um, and so they had the Neapolitan influence, um, which of course meant tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, but they're also very avid fishermen. Um And you might think, okay, duh, Parla, like it's an island, people are fishing. But that wasn't actually the case in many places because small fish, uh, small fisheries were less um, commercially viable. And it was the larger catch like swordfish and tuna Mm -hmm. that really drove the fish economy in a lot of places. So when you go to Ponza, the the absolute uh, array of fish from the coast is, is super exciting. And there are lots of crustaceans and mollusks. And I just, I think definitely if you're into a variety of, of dishes from land and sea, and you're looking to explore a smaller Island, Pons is it. And eels. So many. I mean, eels eels are actually a, a major source of protein for Sardinians as well. I mentioned those lagoons. Um, and so eels are easier to raise than other fish. Hmm. And so eels would be raised all the way back into Roman times. Um, and when you're looking, you know, when I'm mentioning this, this variety of fish that's available, this is a, a mid to late 20th century thing because mm-hmm. fishing fit, like just having ice, <laughs> having the infrastructure to distribute fish was not something that was fully developed until then. But when you sit down at the home of someone in Ponza or a place I love to go, La Marina in Le Forna in Ponza, the things that you see on the menu could be fresh fish or they could be eels or they could be uh, legumes or vegetables. Um, and so it's a pretty omnivorous cuisine, um, really, really complex and, and delicious. Yeah. And yet being so close to the mainland and yet having these you know, distinct or this distinct culinary tradition. I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's just very interesting to observe. We see Um, that certainly the Neapolitan sphere of influence, of course, now Romans visit all the time as uh, a holiday destination, but Ponza, it's quite a, it's quite a uh, trek off the coast. And so it has that ability to develop its own culture because it is isolated in spite of the fact that it was the sort of Neapolitan outpost and Ponza 
can kind of be hard to get to sometimes. Like during the pandemic, the port at Anzio wasn't properly dredged. And so there was a period during the summer when you couldn't just hop on a train for an hour, go to Anzio and go on a hydrofold to Ponzi. You had to go to the southern part of the region, get a ferry. And so that is a modern reminder that these places really were challenging to reach. Huh. Yeah. And that has, but yet Ponza was, um, Ponza was established, um, has quite a history. I mean, so they were, do you think it was a stronghold at some point? Well, in antiquity, it was a place of exile. I mean, mm-hmm. when you see it, you're like, oh my God, that would be so amazing to be stuck here forever. But it was really far yeah. from the mainland. And because of bad weather, you'd be stuck there sometimes for a season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, I wouldn't mind a couple months on ponds at TBH. Now that I'm going to set aside some calendar time for vacation. You have to decide what island you're going to go to, right? <laughs> Well, you can think about that for a while because we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about more food. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese... The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Katie Parla. Her new book is Food of the Italian Islands. Um, Katie, I said we would talk about food, and there are so many dishes to talk about. Is there from pick one of the islands. Well, I mean, we didn't even talk about so many of the islands. You can just, you can, you know, filter down to a few. But is there a dish in particular that, uh, let's say from, oh, well, could be a Sicilian island, uh, Pantelleria, for instance. Uh, But any one of the islands, is there a dish that most uh, illustrates or still has so much of the ancient influence from another culture that you can think of. Yeah. I mean, Pantelleri is interesting. If anything, it feels a lot like Lampedusa and Linoza in that it, it looks to the mainland of Sicily for its influence. So when you go to Pantelleria, there are dishes that would be called like insalata pantesca, the salad of Pantelleria or (laughs) pesto pantesco, but the influences on the menus tend to be mainland Sicily. Um, and so you'll find caponata, arancine, mm-hmm. which because of my Palermo roots, I'm using the feminine, not the masculine as you might, as you might uh, if coming from the eastern part of Sicily. So I think, you know, I'm going to evoke Sardinia again, the um, porcedu suckling pig, um, the mutton stews, and the dishes with botarga really are super rooted in that 
ancient influence. And so is the fragula, which is the sort of pearl couscous, Mm -hmm. larger grains of couscous that have been produced on the island since the Middle Ages. And those are simmered in broth that might have a mutton base or a fish stock base um, and is a real testament to the uh, now centuries of Durham wheat dried pasta production that have defined the island. Right. And not, and pasta is pretty much well today, at least is, is you'll find that pretty much on all of the islands, I would say maybe wasn't always quite so popular. Um, well, I mean, think of the islands that didn't have any grain. They had no grain, right. And the Venetian Lagoon, I think, is a great example of a place that's now absorbed a lot of Italian cultural traditions. Now you can find dried pasta on menus everywhere. But previously, and we're talking, you know, going back a century, the dominant carbohydrate was polenta and polenta that was not nixtamalized. And so people in the Venetian Lagoon and the mainland of Veneto were consuming polenta as not just their main carb, but one of the main ingredients that would nourish them for the day. Although ironically, the polenta was not nourishing them. It was depleting their B vitamins and causing a terrible illness called pelagra. Mm -hmm. And you can still visit the manicomi, which are the institutions where people who suffered from pelagra, which causes all sorts of terrible ailments, including dementia, uh, would be housed until the 20th century. Yeah, I mean that was that's that is when we learn about nishtamalization, right? I mean, you Absolutely. gotta gotta do that to the corn, or you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything from it. Um, one thing that I learned about from your book, which I I really loved reading about, and that was a um, well, Pantelleria is, is famous for its its capers, um, and that was a salad of the caper leaves, which. I have seen jars of them before, but I have never really explored the caper leaves. Not something that I would go to. Now you explained why. Can you talk about what, why, you know, caper leaves are a, a, an acquired specialty? So capers grow on bushes with these um, not quite circular, almost like heart, chunky heart-shaped leaves. And the buds can be harvested and cured. So can the berries. But it's always so curious when you have like food around and people aren't actually eating it. So there's a place in Pantelleria called La Nicchia, which is the fir- first place I know of in all of Italy to give the leaves the same treatment as the buds and the berries. That is salting them. It draws out the bitter compounds. And once they're processed, they taste like capers. Um, and, you know, I've seen this tradition in North Cyprus, and they're treated more or less the same way, cured in salt or uh, marinated in vinegar, and then served beside a slice of fish or added to a salad. Um, Something similar I observed was the absolute ubiquity of cacti, the ones that grow prickly pears, which Mm -hmm. are from the Americas, were introduced to Italy and thrive all over the islands. Like you can't you know, go to Italy at any point of the year and not see them if you're in uh, the central and southern part of of the country. But almost no one uses the cactus pads as food. 
they're too distracted probably by the pretty colors of the prickly pears. Um, <laughs> but I think caper leaves are a good example of this food that's just out there that is only recently being discovered and really just by one place, La Nicchia in Pantelleria. And they're, uh, you know, uh, they're, they have their own fields now, but a lot of their capers and leaves are coming from farmers who will do the first stage of salting for one month and then deliver the salted capers to uh, the facility for further processing. Yeah. And the leaves, um, and as you mentioned, the leaves could be quite bitter if they didn't have this processing. You it's the same thing when you like when you bite into an olive, you're like, oh, wish I didn't yeah, do that. Right. Um, <laughs> it's got a lot of tannin. It leaves a sort of astringent, uh, like it takes away all the saliva. It's really gross. But the salting uh, transforms it into an edible product. Ah, so many wonderful dishes in this book. So many things to talk about food-wise. Um, breads. Breads are, are are always very important in the diet, um, from artful creations to, as you mentioned, the pane carasau. Now, how would you differentiate the carta de musica from pan carasau? Pane carasau is the same thing. It's the same thing. That's what That's what I've always considered, so I just didn't know. There is a slightly thicker version. Yeah, Carta de Musica um, is really so thin you can't. It's hard to transport. That's why I couldn't imagine the you know shepherds transporting it. Well, they had a satchel for it. It was like a purpose-made <laughs> little. I'm serious. I'm always like, listen. Whenever I go to Sardinia, I'm like, where is the museum? Because every village virtually has a small museum of that local culture. Where you'll, you'll see textiles. You'll see uh, drying baskets for. Um, produce and mm -hmm. for pasta, you'll see the the classic bread design of that village, and then the tools that shepherds would use to do their job and feed themselves. And I really need to get myself a pane carousel pouch. There you go. I have to have it. <laughs> One thing uh, that um, some would say Italians aren't big on pastries and desserts, but of course not true in Palermo. Also, there is one particular um, sweet that is in Sardinia, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it because it's on one of my all-time favorites, and that's the seada. Oh, seada is delicious, and they are parcels of lard-based dough filled with pecorino that's acidulated, so it's got a, a nice tang to it. Um, often with some citrus zest grated into it. So you like slice up the cheese, grate in the zest, and then fold it all together and melt it. And then lay it on your counter, roll it out, make sure it's flat, cut it into discs, and then you layer the, the pastry around it. And then ideally you have a cutter for your seada creation, um, which is sold in like literally the... Uh, the ferramente, like the hardware, hardware stores. <laughs> and they leave, uh, they leave this very beautiful, uh, decorative edge around, uh, around the, the imprint. And, uh, and then of course you got to fry it ideally in lard, but you can also do oil. Yeah. Like a large ravioli. Think of a really large ravioli, but yeah. <laughs> Big old so cheese better. raviolo. All right. Right. I forgot the most important part. You put yeah. honey on it. Oh, lots of honey. <laughs> lots of honey which is of course one of their one of the products that they excel in i mean they have so much wonderful wonderful honey different flavors more bitter honey it's a land of bitter honey really you know it's absolutely it's, to love it yeah and 
who would have thought but the Italians, of course, in the islands, to make a cream out of pistachios? I mean, pistachio cream. Oh, what a dream. It's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, there's a really important food artisan in Noto called Corrado Asenza. Uh, and his version is the most exquisite available to mankind. So do go to Cafe Sicilia. You won't be the only one there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty, pretty popular, right. but he blends locally cultivated pistachios um, with sugar and water and it's beautiful and thick and spreadable. And it tastes so intense and amazing. Um, I've got a version in my book, which is really simple. You just buzz up the ingredients I mentioned, and you're good. Get a piece of toast, spread it on, and you're good to go. I'm looking at the picture right now, and it's, it is mouth-watering. It looks great, right? Anything that you would – I know there are things we haven't talked about, but let them buy the book because there's so many wonderful things in it. But something that you would mention that maybe uh, to you is important in describing the food of these islands or – the food culture? Yeah, I think I, I, I get a lot of feedback from readers and many have expressed trepidation about island visits because they don't like fish. Well, huh. you're in luck yeah. because fish is just one very small part of island food culture. Because of invasions, the sea, weather, literal pirates, a lot of island cultures have developed inland and people have had to raise and grow to support themselves in times of siege or isolation. And so if you are a vegan, if you have a gluten-free diet, if you are a vegetarian, if you never want to look at a fish again in your life, <laughs> islands are for you, I'm telling you. you. Okay, you might run into an anchovy here or there, okay? It might happen, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, at least in my opinion. And thank but, goodness for the anchovy industry on the yes. islands. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you can eat a really omnivorous diet in these places, and in Sicily and Sardinia, the bakeries, the pastry shops, the rosticceria, the frigiturie, the street food stalls, that's where people do their eating. So while it's tempting to plan a trip and eat restaurant meals twice a day, don't. Definitely excavate some time in order to eat as islanders do, which is not seated at a restaurant all the time. In fact, rarely do people go out in the islands in general. It's a lot of home cooking and a lot of food on the go, lunchtime especially, where you can taste these island delicacies that wouldn't be served at a restaurant. Yeah, that's why like your book is really compiled of a lot of home cooks recipes. And and I, I think that that speaks really to the to the culture more so than getting something from a you know popular restaurant. One thing that we didn't talk about, and you just now mentioned it, and I and realized that, especially at Palermo, is at where you really see and feel taste the influences of some of these ancient cultures is the street food the street food so of palermo not as necessarily for the intrepid some of it but okay um, i've got good news for people who don't eat lung spleen and cartilage there <laughs> the, the four people out there um there is a classic palermo street food it's panelle and croquet so chickpea fritters and deep fried mashed potatoes, I guess you could call it yeah. on a semolina dough bun, often with sesame seeds. And that is vegetarian. 
Um, if you hold the bun and well, yeah, if you hold the bun for sure, um, then you've got a gluten-free dish though. Some people do flour the outside of the potato croquettes and that's a ubiquitous street food. You'll see people queuing up at stalls all over town in the markets, eating that at lunchtime, maybe with a little bit of spritz of lemon, definitely with some iodized salt shaken out of a sticky shaker from the counter. It's a classic, but there are more visceral experiences, literally. Um, Panico meosa is uh, spleen and sometimes also lung that's poached in lard. That's served on a sandwich with grated cheese. You've got stigiola, uh, which are intestines that have been grilled over charcoal. And those are sometimes just served like sliced on a plate, totally unadorned. Um, you've also got uh, fritole. Um, when you're walking through the Capo or Baloro markets, you'll see like the guy with the basket. And he always has like one of those funny printed tablecloths hanging over the basket to cover what's inside. And what's inside is a lot of scraps from butchery that have been poached in lard. And he'll reach inside. It's always a guy with a gloved hand sometimes and take a fistful of the fritole and put it on a bun or just on a plate. And that is a chewy, sometimes a little crispy treat. Mm. Interesting. And, and, you know, it's, it's sort of combats the heat in the summertime. I don't know, hot food with hot weather. I think it works. <laughs> I think the, the, it's interesting. That, so you go to these islands and don't expect a regular Italian meal. Yes, you can find it, but look for the, look for the unusual, look for something that, that is a little different. And if you're, uh, an interested traveler. That's what you would do anyway, I would imagine. But the islands hold treasures for sure. And Katie, you have done quite a job exploring all these islands. And I can't wait to find out which island you're going to choose to take your vacation on <laughs> or which of men or how many of which, you know, you, that you're going to go to. It has been, yeah. Well, it's been a real treat as always to talk to you. And I encourage people to pick up a copy of this book. It is Really delicious, easy recipes, wonderful, you know, just wonderful explanations. And as always, a lot of good historical background. Thanks, Katie. Grazie. And thank you for listening to another Taste of the Past. This has been brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. And be sure to check out heritageradionetwork.org for more shows like this and many other topics on food. And please look at the beating heart in the top right corner and consider donating. We are a listener-supported network. Thank you. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe 